This morning we come, as Pete mentioned, to our last sermon in the Back to Basics series. This sermon we will consider together the life we are called to live as Christians. There's a danger when we think about this kind of theme of what are, what are we supposed to do as Christians. It's very tempting to forget that all of it is founded upon what Christ has done. We must never let our lives of obedience become detached from Christ's obedience, which saves us. And so it's important for us to, um, to keep both of these things in mind. Otherwise, we will, get, uh, we will go astray, and we will think too much of our own lives, our own behavior, our own obedience, and we'll put too much weight on our lives and on our obedience, weight that only really should be laid on Christ. This is uh, evident even in our Romans 12 passage that's been the theme of kind of the umbrella verse that has uh, governed our thinking. Um, Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, which implies that everything he has said in Romans 1 through 11 is the foundation of what he's about to say. That is the foundation. That is what enables us to live lives not conformed to the patterns of the world. That is what enables us to um, have our minds transformed. It's what enables us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And so, uh, before we, as we are thinking about how life ought to flow out of what we believe, I want to, as our passage, jump back behind the therefore in Romans 12 and look again at Romans 8. It's something we have treated in a previous Sunday, but it's good to go back there because it is a key passage that defines for us the, the life we are called to live. As we're thinking about the Christian worldview, when we start thinking about our own lives, what we need to think about is how do we view ourselves and our uh, identity in, in, in view of, of what God has done for us. And so, as a little spoiler, uh, the, 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 the key insight that we need to grasp is that the life we are called to live is the lives of sons and daughters. And we'll unpack what that means, but to just sort of get your mind thinking about this, uh, the theologian J.I. Packer has written this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And so if, if being a child of God is the foundation of how we are to live our lives, let's look together at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, and let's hear from God's own word about the life to which he calls us. You can find it on page 944 of your two Bibles if you'd like to follow along. But let us pray together that the Spirit would open our minds and ears and hearts to his word today. Heavenly Father, as those who have been called into your family, we want to resemble you in our lives. We want to share the likeness of our Father and of our elder brother Jesus. So we pray that you would use your word to that end this morning. That your Holy Spirit would shine his light into our hearts and onto the pages of your word. So that the message you would have for us of assurance would transform us. Transform how we view ourselves and the world and the life to which you call us. So do this by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So beginning in verse 12 of Romans chapter 8, I invite you to hear now the word of the Lord. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this idea of our identity of, as children of God is one that has been in my mind a lot lately. Over, As most of you know, for the past three months, I uh, was studying on a sabbatical the doctrine of adoption, which is the way that Paul in particular, but the Bible more broadly, speaks about our primary relationship to God, that we were adopted into his family, that God saves us by claiming us and adopting us to be his own children, sons and daughters adopted in Christ. There's a lot that this doctrine offers us in terms of helping us understand the Christian life, but, but it also helps us understand salvation, because what it emphasizes to us is that when God saves us, he doesn't just forgive us, although he does do that. He doesn't just cleanse us of our sin. He doesn't just redeem us out of something any more than uh, a, a family who adopts a child just sets them free from their orphanage. That is not an adoption. An adoption is when someone who is not part of a family is brought in to be a full member of a new family. And so adoption, the doctrine, reminds us that God doesn't just get us out of something, but he puts us into something as well. And that is what salvation is. Not only to be forgiven, but to be made sons and daughters in the family of God. To put it in Trinitarian terms, the Father sends the Son to be put in the place of sinners. And then the Holy Spirit puts sinners in the place of the Son. We are adopted, we are put in the place of the Son so that we might be in reconciled relationship with the Father. What God does for us in Christ, redemption, he also does in us by the Spirit, which Paul says in our passage is the spirit of adoption. And so it's so important for us to remember this because it has all sorts of implications for how we're supposed to live. Think about it this way. If in modern day terms, the difference between a slave and a son might be, which is how Paul distinguishes in our passage, the, the two kinds of life. He says we are not to live according to the flesh, but we are to live according to the Spirit. And all who are led by the Spirit of God, in verse 14, are sons of God. So we have these options, to live as a slave or to live as a, a son. And so if we think about this in modern day terms, the most important thing to know about yourself is whether you are living as a servant or living as a son. Living as a slave or as a son. And so we can think about this as an employee at a company or a child in the family. How are those uh, relationships different? Both employees and children 
have responsibilities and expectations. There are things that we are expected to do, but, and ways that we are expected to live, but the ground of, the, of those expectations are completely different for an employee than they are for a child. One way to think about it is that for an employee, your behavior determines the relationship, right? If you don't do your job, you will lose your status as an employee. So behavior determines relationship. But for a child, it's precisely the opposite. It is the secure relationship that, it, that determines the behavior. So a father says to his son, that's not how, we, these are the ways that I want you to live. No, the, his status as son is not at risk, but it is because he is a son that he is expected to live in the following, in, in the following certain ways. Relationship determines behavior for a child. A way of life is expected precisely because of their status as sons. So for a servant or a slave, behavior comes first and governs the relationship. And for sons, relationship comes first and governs the behavior. This is incredibly important for us to remember as believers because we are always tempted to slip back into a slave mentality and think that we must do certain things in order for God to love us. And that will simply lead us into a never-ending, exhausting, and futile search to earn our place in the family. We cannot earn our place in the family because Christ earned our place in the family for us. Paul writes in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us, redeem those under the law, so that they might receive adoption as sons. And so it is that Jesus came to take our place so that we might take our place as sinners so that we might take his place as a son. The implications of this are incredible because what it means is that when God sees us in Christ, when we have by faith been united to Christ by, by the Holy Spirit, we are the recipients of the, of per, the love of a perfect father for a perfect son. That is the kind of love that we experience. When God sees us, he does not see us as the messes that we are. He sees us as the son and daughter that he has claimed us to be. And so that is the, that is, that makes, that distinction makes all the difference in our lives. To paraphrase Tim Keller, a slave thinks, if I obey, I will be accepted. But a son says, since I'm accepted, I will obey. So what is the shape, broadly speaking, of the life of sons and daughters that we're called to live? What does it practically look like? Well, I think our passage gives us three ideas of what sons and daughters, how our lives are marked. And I think we see first that there is, that it is a life of struggling with sin, a life of courageous suffering, and a life of risky hope. This is how sons and daughters of God are to live. This is the Christian life to which we are called. Struggling with sin, courageous in suffering, and risky in hope. First we see that it is a life of struggling against sin. Now, in our world today, sin sounds like, for many of us, the fun stuff of life that uptight, churchy people disapprove of. That's the way we typically think of sin. And so to do something like putting sin to death sounds like a kind of psychological pathology, 
right? It's, that sounds like something crazy religious people do. But when the Bible describes sin, we need to keep in mind that what it's describing is, is everything that dehumanizes us, everything that cripples us and enslaves us and destroys us. That is what sin is. It is the evil at work in us. It is the, the greed that controls us. It is the, the anger that destroys relationships. It's the bitterness that shrivels up our hearts. It's the lust that objectifies and dehumanizes. If we live controlled by these things, as Paul says, if we live according to the flesh, according to those things, we are not really living. In fact, we will eventually die. Because those things do not lead to life. But, Paul says, if you live, if you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will really live. And so the son or daughter of God, the life to which we are called, is one of constant battle against death and sin and destruction in all of its manifestations. But notice that, as Paul says, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so Christians aren't concerned about putting to death the sin in their lives because we are obsessed with sin, but because we are obsessed with life. We want to experience life as God intended it. And so we put to death the things of death that are in our own lives. We want to obey God as children, not out of fear, but out of love and gratitude because of the way that God has brought us near to himself in Jesus Christ. And so, this idea of putting sin to death involves both internal work of the Christian and external work of the Christian. We fight it inside ourselves primarily because we know that our hearts are the things that need to be changed, our own hearts that where God wants to work. But we also see it in the world, and when we do, we fight sin there too. So sons and daughters, sons and daughters of God put to death greed in themselves and seek to alleviate poverty in the world, the effects of greed in the world. We watch the anger in our own hearts and confess it and lift it up to the Lord, and we promote peace in the world, the effects of anger we seek to alleviate. We put our own selfishness and self-centeredness to death through confession and receiving God's forgiveness, and then we go and lay down our lives for our neighbors walk backwards through what Paul is saying. He's saying sons and daughters of God are those who are led by the Spirit. And those who are led by the Spirit, what the Spirit leads us to do is more clearly recognize our own sin and leave it behind as we realize and experience what God has done for us by redeeming us in Christ. So practically what this means is that children of God are always asking themselves, what do I need to leave behind? in order to please the loving Father who has rescued me out of slavery and welcomed me into his family. This is how the Spirit leads sons of God and enables us to resemble the family into which we have been adopted. So it is important for us to ask ourselves, even this morning, have we grown comfortable with the sin that is in our own lives? Are we settling for less than the holy life to which God calls his sons and daughters. Holy life that resembles the Father and resembles the Son, Jesus, and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
This happens when we follow the leading of the Spirit by leaving behind and putting to death the things that we know do not please our Father. So Christians, sons and daughters of God, as we have been welcomed into this new family, begin to live in a new way. And one of those ways is through struggle with sin. The second thing that Christians are called to is a life of courageous suffering. Verse 15 says, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So just like being a son or a daughter doesn't, doesn't change the fact that we have to live a certain way, it shapes our, our attitude towards that obedience. In the same way, being a son or daughter doesn't free us from suffering, but it does shape our attitude towards that suffering. Because what being a son or daughter of God united to Christ reminds us is that suffering is not a sign for the Christian of God's absence. Indeed, suffering is often a result of our union with Christ, who is himself a suffering Savior. Verse 17 says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Suffering takes on a new meaning in the life of the Christian because there are ways that we can suffer with Christ. Remember, to be saved is to be put in the place of the Son. And the Son of God was a suffering servant. So how could we be united to a crucified Lord and never experience any suffering? Paul makes an incredibly powerful reference here when he refers to the cry, Abba, Father enabled in us by the Holy Spirit of adoption. The place where Jesus himself cried, Abba, Father, can be found in Mark 14. And that is when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he is praying to his Abba, Father. And what is he praying? He's saying, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus uses this phrase, Abba, Father, in his moment of deepest struggle, when he is looking out on unspeakable suffering, that is when he is most obedient to the Father. In that moment of his deepest obedience, it is also the moment of his deepest suffering. And so suffering and sonship go together for sons and daughters of God. We who are united to him, adopted in him as sons of God, we will find the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we are sons of God when we are obedient to him, yielding to his will when it is most difficult. So this Abba Father cry is not a cry of triumph. It's not a cry of confidence. It is a cry of those who know their, their deep need. But it is also a promise that we are not alone in our suffering. We, it is not a surprise, because we know that we are being conformed to the image of one who suffered, but it is also not definitive, because we know the one who suffered is the one who triumphed over the grave as well. And so we expect, as Christians, to suffer in order that we may be glorified with Christ. I think what is being emphasized here is the suffering of obedience, the suffering that comes when we are faithful to the Lord in the face of opposition. That is the, the primary kind of suffering Paul has in mind. 
And in some parts of the world today, that is a fierce opposition, where lives are literally on the line. And in our context in America, it's far more often a kind of social marginalization. But as sons and daughters of this father, the father who sent his son to save us, the father who sends his spirit to make us sons and daughters, we are called to live a life in which we accept rejection. We suffer courageously because we know it is a suffering with and for Christ as adopted sons and daughters. And so it's important for us as Christians to ask, have we grown too comfortable with a comfortable life? Is our obedience such that we might be rejected? Or do we simply match the comfortable lives of those around us? And are we settling for less than the life to which God has called his children? The third characteristic of the life that we are called to live is a life of risky hope. Christians are not just to be dutiful in obedience and serene in suffering. We ought to be exploding with hope and confidence, for our future is secure. Paul says here, if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is one of the powerful ways that Paul uses this image of adoption in his context, because, and why he uses only the language of sons. Because in, in Rome, only sons were adopted. Because the primary purpose of adoption was to have someone to inherit the wealth of the father. And so if a, if a man had many slaves, but no son who could inherit his, his riches, his wealth, he would adopt one of his slaves as a son, so that he could give his inheritance to a son. Paul says in Galatians 3 that all who belong to Christ are sons of God. And so even in the Bible, that concept of son is open to both men and women. But what Paul is emphasizing is this. Now we have an inheritance. We have hope that is secure. God's sons and daughters know, and they live in the awareness that there is a rich inheritance awaiting us. This is how we can live with risky hope. This is how we can live with courage and suffering. This is why we want to leave behind the things of death, because we know that what awaits us is eternal life. That is actually the life to which God has called us. Eternal life. When our deepest hunger will be satisfied, our deepest thirst will be quenched, the brokenness of the world will be restored, and the good and glorious purposes of God will be made real for us and for all the world. The hope of our inheritance in Christ is what draws us forward. The riches of God, which by rights should go only to his obedient son, Jesus, because of adoption, is now available to all who trust in Christ. That can transform the way we live in this brief time that we walk through the world. There is a reason the Bible describes the life to come as a banquet, as a wedding, as a cosmopolitan city of glory. And it is not because it will be less than the lives we have here on earth. It will be more. And it is the hope of this inheritance in Christ that draws us forward and gives us confidence that our suffering and our struggle with sin and the risk that comes with this hope will eventually come to an end. We will be like him. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are.
Beloved, we are God's children now, and we, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. At the end of the day, the life that we are called to live is a life unto eternity, with eternity in mind. And so, if we are eternally secure, have we grown comfortable with living safe lives, settling for so much less than what we could offer the world if we knew how safe and secure we eternally were? I wonder two things. I wonder how much more of the Christian life we would experience if our lives were marked by a true reckoning with the gravity and destructive power of the sin in our lives, and we were struggling with it. I wonder how much more of life we would experience if we recognize that suffering is, can be a way that we become closer to Jesus Christ and know him better and resemble him more. And I wonder how much more of life we would experience if we lived with a hope that enabled us to risk for the gospel and for the world. And I wonder what the world would think if the family of God was so distinctive in these ways, a family that was humble and constantly confessing their sin, a family that was courageous even in suffering, a family that lived with a distinctive hope. What would the world see? They might see sons and daughters of God reflecting their father and the brother who saved them in the world around them. May it be so of us as the Spirit works in us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to save us. We thank you that in him we can find our true identity. And when you see us, you see us in him. We thank you for sending your Spirit to unite us to him and to one another. And we pray, we pray that we might more fully experience the depths of your love for your sons and daughters so that we might live as free children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and sing together.